Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. Well, we've got a great show for you. We're going to talk a little about soil health. If you've got any questions for us, you can certainly give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. So we're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag here in just a minute. And Darren, I just want to make sure we pull up all those questions we weren't able to get to yesterday uh, during our Ag P- excuse me, Ag PhD corn agronomy workshop. It was a lot of fun yesterday. We did have a live audience in person, roughly 150 people in an enormously huge building. So we had everybody spread out and, and so that all, that all worked well. But anyway, we had a big live audience online as well. And we got so many questions in from our online audience. We weren't able to get to all of those. So anyway, we do want to get those, get to them and hopefully all of them today. But again, if you've got any questions for us you'd like answered right now, just give us a call or send us an email and we will talk about soil health throughout the show. But right now, let's uh, let's hit those questions in the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, Brian, got a lot of things going on. One of the things that we talked about, a, a natural product that we're using on our farm or a I shouldn't even say a product. Alpha complete. How would you say a natural, a package of natural products? Yep. Uh, anyway, I had a question about that just from from one of our uh, viewers that's up in Canada. Just wondering is is that and a lot of the natural things you talk about seem to be specific products in the United States. Do you see similar products in other countries? Uh, are those products able to export to other countries? Just curious. Well, in most cases, uh, they are United States products. And with regulations and different things with some of these natural-type products, it's amazing. It should be the easiest thing in the world to jump over the borders. But when you start talking about microbes, that does make everybody uh, be a little bit cautious of, ooh, I wonder if that microbe is common in our country as well. Is that something that's naturally found in our soils? Even though it's naturally found in soils in the United States, why would it not be uh, (laughs) across the border to the north in North America? America. I, I, I'm not sure, but at this point, I don't believe. Well, I know Alpha Complete is not labeled to sell into Ontario, but I'm not sure about any of the other naturals you might be talking about. But from what my experience has been, uh, no, they would have to seek separate labels in each country they want to sell into. Yeah. So what we were talking about yesterday during the workshop, this Alpha Complete, basically, we've been doing lots of experiments with biological or natural products over the years. And we're to the point now where we've gotten to, we'd really like to combine certain things. So what that Alpha Complete thing is, is basically microcycle, which is a nutrient solubilizer. There are a lot of nutrients in the soil, and you probably have heard this. So let's say you went to an ag college. They probably talked about how many thousands of pounds of potassium are in the soil and phosphorus and all these other nutrients, but our plants can't access them. Well, that's the point of some of these biologicals like microcycle to try to get more of them into solution and more into a form the plant can use. Uh, Heat shield, we've talked about quite a bit on the show here in the past. That's basically fungal endophytes that can live inside plants to 
help the plant with everything from cold tolerance to heat tolerance, etc. Boost 10 is amino acids, and then you've got BioPrep, which is basically a chlorine neutralizer, and WaterRite, which is a calcium, magnesium, copper, and iron neutralizer is lowering pH a little bit. So it's water treatment for the BioPrep and WaterRite. And altogether, we were just saying, hey, we're spending about 12 and a half bucks for this with what corn and soybean and wheat prices are at today. It's something that's certainly worth a try, either in furrow or early post. You've had good success either way. All right. Another one came in. What are the corn safeners commonly found in acetochlor corn premixes? I think a lot of times it's dichloramid that they're using as a safener, but there could be others. And you said, how can I uh, do it yourself, safen acetochlor for corn pre-applications? Yep. You, there, there is no way to safen it yourself. Well, well we not, talk a, not to you an about. additive. Not right. An additive. But we, we, yeah, and we, we've already answered the, both of these questions, Darren. Why don't you hit some that we haven't answered yesterday? Ah, but during I don't the radio show. either of those, Brian. You yeah, may have we read did. them, but we no. didn't answer them. Yep. We answered those during the radio show yesterday because we talked about, and you even were the one who said, hey, I like um, incorporation. That's going to safen that, that uh, group that 15 a, a little more. It was a different question. Otherwise, um, you could put it on early pre or in the fall if you want to. It's just where we worry about any herbicide the most is if you lay it on after you plant and then you happen to, very unfortunately, get an enormously huge rain just as the plant is about to emerge from the soil. That's where you typically have the biggest risk with the pre's and also when it's cold and, and uh, to go along with that wet. All right, another question here. On soils with high salts and where irrigation water has high salt levels, how do you combat this? Yeah, it's uh, a challenge. Poor irrigation well, water quality well, is bad. And you think about the millions and millions of pounds of that irrigation water you're putting out on fields, you've got to have fantastic drainage in those fields to try to move some of that through. Yeah, but typically irrigation water doesn't have that high of a salt content. So anyway, I, I would just say, number one, we talk about tile. Number two, we talk about make sure you have good levels of calcium, like 65 to 75%. And then three is organic matter. You want to build up your soil's organic matter. If you have good levels of organic matter, you have high levels of calcium, and you have an adequate amount of tile in that ground, salt flushes out very easily with rainfall and irrigation. If you have super poor irrigation water, then yeah, we're always going to talk to you about, is there a way you could dig a deeper well, find a different water source, treat that water, do something to negate all that bad stuff you're putting out in the soil. But high salt, I don't typically see that out of irrigation water. All right. Uh, I guess, I don't know if we have time to answer this, but how long does it take for nitrogen and sulfur to become available when you apply AMS? Is it too late to apply AMS where corn will no longer, or when is it too late to apply it to corn? Thirty so you to six those nutrients. Yeah, thirty to sixty days, and corn plants need nutrients even very late into the season. But still, we would just want to make sure that our crop never runs short on any particular day. So I always advise people be at least a little bit on the early side rather than on the late side, because we don't want to see that corn turning yellow due to lack of nitrogen or sulfur ever. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We'll be right back. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. 
How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Goose deck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at openskyherbicide.com. Customer service goes a long way when trying something new. Ryan Shaw from Michigan shares how Soil Warrior helped him transition to strip tillage in his operation. The Soil Warrior guys, they are amazing to work with. They made this jump in this transition extremely painless. One question that I get all the time is, how is the service and everything? And I said, well, actually, I get better service from them than I typically do my dealers uptown. They're just amazing. More info at SoilWarrior.com. Fill once, plant all day. The Thrive 3D application system from FMC is a revolutionary in-furrow crop protection platform that plants up to 480 acres between refills. The Thrive 3D application system mounts to most major planter brands and can be yours at no cost with the FMC Freedom Pass program. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice, with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us. Really excited. We're back in the studio today, but yesterday we had the Ag PhD Corn Agronomy Workshop. What a fun time. We got great questions. Brandon and I were already trying to tackle some of the ones that we didn't get answered yesterday. We had more questions than time, as is often the case. And fortunately for us, Janelle's got Scott Inman on with us right now from Valent to talk a little bit. And Scott, we had a few questions about mycorrhizal fungi, and and, uh, good to have you on the show today. Hey, Darren, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's a great topic. <laughs> you know, we had we had a couple guys that had used mycorrhizae fungi over the years, and what was interesting is is one of the guys like, I don't know what's happening. I've got a neighbor that didn't have good luck, and I'm right across the fence, and it worked great for me. And he said the only difference is that, that the neighbor, he goes, I don't know what, what's going on over there, but but he said his water is different and they figured out they're having some water issues. And the guy I was talking to, he said, I've been treating my water cause I, I'm using rural water. I got chlorine in there and I'm wondering if he's not. And he asked if that was a question or if that had been a problem for guys. And I said, absolutely. What's been your experience with that, Scott? Have you seen poor water quality hurt some of these microbes in our mixes? And, you know, just to clarify, Darren, is it is that in uh, the application or is it in just the watering, you know, like irrigation? No, no, uh, in, in application when he's putting stuff in for Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's all about timing. I mean, there are some, um, you know, there, you know, bacteria, you get your uh, gram negatives are definitely more sensitive than gram positives. And then, you know, 
the nice thing about mycorrhizae specifically is they're you know in a dormant form, and so that's why we have on our you know use patterns not to have it in a tank for longer than 24 hours. There's a couple of things that happen. You know, the longer it's in there, some things germinate. You know, and then when you put it out, you change the environment, so you can have gotcha. some natural loss there as well. So there are a couple of things. Usually, if it's not in the tank for very long, um, you know, like I said, gram-negative bacteria are probably the most sensitive, and then there are a few of the other fungi that you know are uh, less dormant, and they do have a little more sensitivity to chlorine, uh, specifically, you know, in the water and other components. I mean, it could be other tank mixes there things in there that are changing the ph as well because you got to think about the environment though where those organisms are they're in a perfect and then you put it into a tank you're changing you know the actual environment so some of those um do respond to that you bet we you know we've had some tough weather conditions the last few years and it's been interesting talking to farmers we, we get to talk to a lot of farmers that are trying new things and Using mycorrhizae fungi in some of these tough conditions, growers have said, I've had my best results ever. Is that normal? Is that what you, where you see big gains at? Well, you kind of got to think about uh, mycorrhizae as the, 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 to mitigate stress or that. So the, the worse the conditions, the better the response, which actually, you know, the grower is trying to get away from. But it is, you know, great insurance because the worst, and you're looking at, uh, you know, ideal conditions. If you, you know, if you look at the big yield contributors, it's moisture, it's nutrition, it's genetics, and then. And then, so when those are not perfect for you know a, a certain uh, genetic line or you know crop, then that's what mycorrhizae steps in and provides that offset because it's allowing the plant to function under those stresses that uh, you know let's say drought or heat. It doesn't have to expend the same amount of energy. The mycorrhizae does all the work, bring and it transports the nutrients, water back to the plant. So that's where that brings it in. But if you have ideal conditions, that's why you you know you see these minimal differences because the plant can do it without it. But when you have those stresses, you know, say uh, you know cold or you know the you've had a lot of water in the Midwest, uh, you know the the drown out and uh, plant back. So. Yeah, those are the worst conditions. We see that. We see also the same thing, you know, in salinity. You know, heavy salinity, you see a better response because the plant can't survive. Very interesting. Yeah, talking about mitigating stress, and I know on the farm we're always looking at that. We know it's going to – we don't want to have the stress, but we know it's going to come because we're putting our crap out there, and, and of course, anything can happen with the weather. Mycorrhizae fungi might be one of those things to look at on your farm this year to help uh, minimize those stresses and keep those yields going. Scott, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Yeah, thanks for the time. You bet. Got Bruce with us right now uh, with Viss and Van Dyke and Drainage over in Minnesota. Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. All right, when we're thinking about soil health, uh, you know, one of the things that Brian and I will always start with is improving drainage and just making sure we've got oxygen in the soil. And I, I think it's interesting to look at it that way. Do most of the farmers you look at think about oxygen or are they thinking about water? Uh, mostly thinking about water. <laughs> I know I do too. I get, I'm guilty of that too. I see water coming out and I'm super happy, but what's happening on the other end is we're filling those pore spaces up with air, which is fantastic. Uh, talk to us about some of the differences you're seeing out there. I know you've, you've been doing this for a while and you got a lot of experience with tiling. Yeah, I, I think, um, uh, one thing I've been noticing in, in our area as more guys go to strip till, 
and no-till or a limited till, um, uh, you certainly want a, a better drainage system underneath uh, for drying out in the spring. You know, with the strip tilling, you just don't get as much black dirt on the top. Stand, tend to stay a little cooler, a little wetter in the spring. Uh, guys are looking for a little more tile. Um, certainly as we move out further into South Dakota where we do some tiling out, Salem, Montrose, out that area, you end up with some heavier alkali areas out there where guys are really trying to get rid of just the little, the little not potholes in their field, but where little depressions where the ground is tight and you end up with, um, with uh, alkali areas where you can't even hardly grow weeds. So, man, you put through there and within a few years you, you got some nice looking crops. Yeah, there there are things that'll build up in soil when drainage is not good. You're absolutely right, and and we do see that not not just in South Dakota, but in our travels, we see it all over. Where it doesn't take much either. It seems like the elevation might only be a foot or two different. Yep, yep. No, I would agree with that. Yep, yep. And then certainly as you as uh, farm equipment gets bigger, um, you have uh, more concerns about compaction. And the wetter your soil is during harvest or during planting, you are certainly uh, spring any spring work um, with haul manure and stuff. The more compaction you're going to get to, and the um, the uh, the tighter your soil is going to get. You know. Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. It it just gives you a little bit more flexibility when you've got soils that that aren't going to be quite so sticky and wet. You can get out there just a little sooner, or you can just feel a little more confident as you're heading across the farm. You're not going to find areas out there or pockets out there that are quite different from others. Absolutely. You know, as you're doing this, Bruce, uh, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of uh, important things for farmers to remember, and I think soil health doesn't happen overnight. Do you run into a lot of guys that get impatient that think, well, I put tile in, and it's a week later, everything should be great in my field? Uh, no, I think uh, most of the guys that we deal with are fairly realistic about that. They realize that, that um, some of these tile areas uh, really do need you know, three, four, maybe even five years to really turn around and uh, build up some, you know, a lot of those areas that we're putting tile, especially in the lower areas, they, they're really uh, deprived of the uh, organic material they need to make good soil health. And um, they realize that it takes a few years to get things turned around. Yeah, it sure does. I, I guess I often say, you know, it didn't get that way overnight. It took years for that to happen. It's not probably going to take as long to turn it around, but but it's certainly going to take a little bit of time for everything to get back to, to how it should be. Talking to Bruce Van Dyken with Viss and Van Dyken Drainage. Bruce, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. You betcha. Thanks for having me. You know, Brian, Bruce made a few great points there about soil health, and, and we think about compaction, what a problem that can be, and alkali and salt-type buildups, uh, and even just the challenge as we change up our tillage system to uh, to keep things in good shape. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we do talk about this all the time, as he said, that, hey, the first step, if you want a healthy soil, the first step is you've got to make sure you have good drainage because there has to be air there for the microbes to live. And along with that, if you have a buildup of, like you say, salt, sodium, anything like that, well, those things can also 
kill your soil microbes. So we got to keep those flushed out of there, which you can with good drainage, keep an appropriate amount of air in there. And those are some of the very first steps you can take to have a much healthier soil in the future. Well, stay tuned. We'll continue talking soil health right after this. Maintaining your crops is as important now as it's ever been. Howler, a revolutionary fungicide from AgBiome, can help. It provides long-lasting protection from a broad spectrum of foliar and soil diseases that affect crops. Howler is OMRI-listed, has multiple modes of action, and has minimal pre-harvest and re-entry intervals. It's flexible, easy to use, and is available right now. Visit agbiome.com forward slash howler to learn more. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of Burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. The Pentair Hypro Express Flush Valve reduces plug nozzles and improves cleanout of your spray boom. Simply flush boom sections with a quarter turn ball valve and leave your tools in the cab. Plus, installation is easy. Simply remove the existing end cap plug and replace with the Hypro Express Flush Valve. Learn more at Pentair.com Hypro. Start your crop off right with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our spike design excels on variable soils and shatters compaction. Plus, the unique shoulder firmer encases the seed to maximize seed-to-soil contact. Order yours at farmshopmfg.com. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. When it comes to trusted herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. And you certainly know New Farm exclusive Weedmaster. For decades, Weedmaster has been the go-to herbicide for consistent burndown weed control in a huge variety of crops, and in range and pasture management too. Don't let yield-robbing weeds stand in the way of your progress or profits. New Farm and Weedmaster Herbicide, here to help. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Talking about soil health, and obviously there's a lot of different things going on with soil health. We were just talking about making sure we have enough oxygen in the soil and reducing compaction and mitigating stress. There's a lot of things going on there. Real happy to have Charlie White with us right now with Penn State to talk a little bit more about soil health. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me on the program. 
All right. I know this topic gets pretty broad when, when you just say soil health. So when you get the question, hey, what can I do to improve my soil health for the long term? What are some of the things that you like to discuss? Sure, sure. So you have to recognize that soil health is about the combination of physical, biological, and, and chemical characteristics. So uh, we have to think about aspects of the cropping system that affect all of those. So in terms of physical characteristics, thinking about limiting tillage and limiting soil disturbance that tends to break up aggregates. On the biological side, we want to do things that um, promote organic matter and promote microbial activity. So cover cropping, um, usage of manures and composts, um, leaving crop residues behind. Um, and then on the chemical side, a lot of people are, are already very familiar with regular routine soil testing for you know phosphorus and, and potassium and soil pH and just make sure you keep up with that program and make sure your fertilizers and, and liming are, are what they should be. Yeah, we definitely have to feed all those microbes in our soil. I know it's been said a lot that microbes have to eat first before our crops can. You mentioned the organic matter and just keeping up with those nutrients. The other thing I guess I was curious about when you mentioned the testing, what about the soil health testing? What's been your experience with that? And is there there any recommendation that, that Penn State is making on that? Sure, sure. So we've sent um, a lot of soil samples in for research purposes to um, different labs that do um, sort of complete suites of soil health analyses. Um, they do aggregate stability testing. They measure microbial respiration, uh, lots of different types of organic matter in the soil. And those, I think, are great from a research perspective, but from a practical perspective for farmers to do that routinely, it's, it's very expensive and, and cost prohibitive. Some of these packages a basic level package might run you about $60 and a full suite might run you around $120. So to do that on all your acreage every three years is sort of financially prohibitive. Um, one of the things that we've seen in our results is that the traditional organic matter test that you can get from your regular fertility lab, uh, sometimes that's included as a standard, sometimes it's an option, but if you um, get that, it is a very good indicator in the long term of where you are at with soil health. And so if you're not already getting that analyzed, it might only be an extra $5 or so to add that onto your regular fertility test. And uh, look at that number, talk to your um, neighbors and, and friends, talk to your extension educators and see if, if your number is uh, where it should be in relation to others. And is it increasing over time? Is it decreasing over time? Is it maintaining steady? And, and that's a great low cost indicator, just that total organic matter measurement. Yeah, that's a great tip. Thanks for that, Charlie. We appreciate that. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I want to backtrack for just a minute. One last question for you. You mentioned cover crops. What what kind of work are you doing at Penn State on cover crops? And what are you seeing guys have success with? Sure. Oh, well, that's a big topic, but uh, <laughs> I know. Know, lots of different spe <laughs> lots of different species to choose from. We're seeing lots of mixes, but also sort of in our climate, traditional sort of rye or triticale monocultures are, are working well. Um, but some of the research we're doing um, is looking at how to credit the nitrogen from those cover crops and determining whether you're going to get a, a credit um, with something like a, a legume, like a clover or a hairy vetch, or maybe you're going to have some tie-up with something like a mature cereal rye and just helping farmers understand better where they are on that spectrum from supply to tie-up on the nitrogen side. It, it really can be all over the map. So we've developed some tools that help sort of more precisely diagnose that for any given scenario. 
Outstanding. We'll have to ask you more questions on a future program. Charlie White with Penn State. Charlie, thank you so much for what you're doing, and uh, thanks for being on the show today, too. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've got Dave Sender with us right now with Environmental Tillage Systems. And, uh, Dave, I, I know one of the first things that Charlie said is reducing tillage is a good thing for soil health, and I know that's something that you've worked on a lot, too. Absolutely. So that's exactly right. One of the first things we talk about when we talk about strip tillage is, is that very fact that we're reducing tillage. And, uh, you know, we, granted, we like to talk about the efficiencies that, that, that an operation can gain through strip tillage. Um, it, it's also kind of that unseen part of things that just isn't readily available to a farmer to see, hey, this is, this is, really making my soils healthier and, and in the long run um that's that's beneficial um tremendously you know for our farm one thing we've noticed too if we're doing our strip till in the fall which is what ideally we'd like to do it doesn't always happen but but that's what we're trying to do we've got a little drier soil it seems like we create less compaction and then we don't have to make another trip out there we've got everything done we just have to wait till the soil's fit to plant absolutely so one of the things that we we talk about, especially when folks are are really starting to investigate what strip till is all about, um, when we talk about the soil health side of things, that's one of the big elements that we talk about is as that soil health continues to improve, and and it doesn't happen overnight. It it takes time. Uh, we'll we'll typically tell guys it takes anywhere from three to four years before they really notice that big difference. But it carries equipment better, and it helps with uh, you know, mitigating that soil compaction through equipment. And uh, you're absolutely right. It helps eliminate and reduce those trips across the field. Now, when we're talking about soil health, one of the things we just had Charlie White on with Penn State, and, and Charlie mentioned keeping up with fertility. We get a lot of questions about this, and I, w I would have to guess most of your growers have been in a broadcast-type fertilizer situation, and now all of a sudden they've got the option of banding things in the row. How do you see farmers making that adjustment, and, and what have you noticed over the years? Yeah, so there's, there's uh, needless to say, I've been a lot of discussion uh, around that topic. But as a rule of thumb, uh, you'll hear a lot of guys in strip-till circles, if you will, talk about reductions of 25% of, uh, of what their broadcast rates would be. Um, you know, there's been some more discussion that uh, even 60% even of what you run on a broadcast uh, rate is something that, you're still going to have the same same nutrients available to that plant is when it's placed in that strip. Again, that 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 question can you can go in a lot of different directions with that. I mean, some guys will still run full rates, um, but there again, sometimes they might be early on in their strip till side of things. Uh, some of the other elements that kind of come into to consideration when you're looking at what your overall fertility program is looking like is, is it a field you own? Is it a field you rent? How long are you going to have control of that field? So there's a lot of other variables that come into play when when one starts thinking about it. But as a general rule of thumb, you'll hear a lot of folks talk about a 25% reduction. But as I said, you're hearing more about uh, even up to a 40% reduction in fertilizer rates when you're incorporating it in that strip 
as opposed to broadcasting it. You know, one last question. We got about one minute left, Dave. Uh, cover crops. When you're when you're seeing guys doing strip till and doing cover crops, are they tilling right through those cover crops? Are they putting out seed with the strip tiller? How are they handling it? Yeah, so kind of all of the above. Um, we've got guys that'll that'll strip till right into a cover crops. A lot of times it's beneficial to to do a burn down uh, ahead of time. Sometimes they'll go into it green. Uh, we do have machines that have the capabilities of applying cover crops. Uh, so in those instances, kind of the as I tell folks, it's the sky's the limit. If you can think about it, there's probably somebody already doing it. Um, whether it's on the row, between the rows, we've had some machines that have even been almost like a broadcast cover crop sp- spreader, if you will, uh, the way we plumb that up. Uh, so they're they're out there doing their fertilizer uh, application and making their strips, and then and then applying cover crop over the entire toolbar. So again, the sky's the limit. It's it's pretty pretty amazing at how creative some some of these uh, operators can get. Oh, I think it's awesome. There's so many different uh, operations out there with different goals, and and like you say, having different options you can do with your equipment is really nice. Talking with Dave Sender with Environmental Tillage Systems. Dave, thank you so much. Really appreciate all the info today. You bet. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. We're talking about soil health on today's Ag PhD radio program, but also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with a Bayer Plus Rewards program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. Because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards, and that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. See program terms and conditions for full details. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping dad. And dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim. I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. It's about time. Applied at Planning, new Zyway 3D fungicide from FMC delivers foliar disease protection from planting to harvest. Active ingredient Flutriafol moves from the soil through the corn as it grows for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. For season-long protection, choose first-of-its-kind Enferrow Zyway 3D fungicide. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy, all the way down to the last drop. <laughs> 
AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We've been talking about soil health, certainly an important thing. And one of the things, I know we have a lot of listeners that don't farm, and they're just trying to get some information about what are farmers thinking about. So Brian, how do you answer those questions from non-farmers? When we talk about soil health, are farmers doing things that are that's not healthy, or, or what's going on on the farm? Well, I, I, let's put it this way. When you're reading farm magazines today, a lot of people are talking about soil health in general because the healthier the soil, the belief is we're going to be able to raise better crops. And there's this word out there that personally I don't like called sustainability. Well, what I find is almost every farmer out there right now has a sustainable operation, but sustainable somehow became organic. Well, you don't have to be organic to be sustainable, but in terms of having good soil health, the number one thing for me is always, always, always going to be drainage. We have to have that first. Then we want to take a look at the overall soil test. Having nutrients in balance, having your pH somewhere near neutral, those things will really help overall soil life. And if you have good soil life, you're going to have good soil health. But also, a big part of soil health and what's going to contribute food for all those microbes and everything living in the soil is raising a good crop. So certainly you can turn it into pasture or whatever you want to, but pasture to me is also a crop. So whatever it is, the point is that you have something growing out there during the months that you have a growing season. So like for us, we do not have a growing season year round. We only have a growing season for six to maybe seven months out of the year. So those are the only months we can grow something. And as long as we have something growing out there, then that's helping to feed that that entire soil and that helps keep it healthy. But yeah, another thing that's gone along with this soil health conversation has been that you have to go no-till. Well, you don't have to go no-till to have a healthy soil. Now, we would say reducing tillage can allow you to build soil organic matter faster, which then does contribute to having a healthier soil. So yeah, we talk a lot about strip till. We talk about reducing tillage and things like that, but you can still have a healthy soil and occasionally run a moldboard plow. Anyway, the, what we're all overall after here is a soil that can raise better crops and be very healthy so it can continue to do a good job for you and produce income for you. But like I say, ultimately, it's just how good a crop can that really raise? And in order to raise a great crop, you have to have the ability to have good roots down in the soil, 
fertility, drainage, and it's stuff that we talk about here on the show almost every day. So <laughs> we're specifically talking soil health today, but if you listen to what we say with almost any topic we cover here or on our TV show or our workshops or anything else, ultimately we're trying to talk about Look, on the farm, you got to make more money, number one. Number two, you've got, or at least make money, number one. And number two, how you get there is usually higher yield. So we're usually talking about more money and more yield. But what do we also say? Our third thing always is we're trying to talk a lot about we got to do the right things for the soil. If we don't, then ultimately we're going to have a problem with number one and number two, making money and getting higher yields. All right, you ready to dive back into some questions? Yep, let's go. Okay, first of all, Jordan said uh, you're talking about reducing tillage and and possibly going no-till. It makes sense to me in wheat, but in corn, it seems like that could be really tough with equipment if you're not doing any tillage out there. What's been your experience with reduced tillage on corn? Yeah, so going back about 25, maybe even 27 years ago, something like that, we switched about half our farm over to no-till because we have highly erodible ground. And what we found real fast is we could dramatically reduce the erosion. We could build soil organic matter. Those things were good, but our yields went down. And the reason why they went down was twofold. Number one, we couldn't get the fertility down where it needed to be. And number two, our soil was just too cold. It, we we have really a really cold climate here, and we're also wet in the spring quite often. So we just weren't getting the stands. We weren't getting the early emergence, the early vigor. It really hurt us. So we took those acres, switched them to strip till, fixed the two problems. So now we were able to place fertility all the way down to 10 inches if we wanted to. And then also our strip is almost as warm as conventional till and about seven degrees warmer in our experience than no-till. So it, our, our stands got a lot better, our yields got a lot better. It was a fantastic thing for us. And I'm not saying that anyone out there shouldn't no-till. I'm simply talking about what worked for us on our farm, in our soils, our conditions, and how we like to do things in the crops that we raise predominantly, which is corn and soybeans. And, and by the way, you can say, well, you could switch to other crops. Well, we've tried other crops and they just don't dollar out near as well as the corn and soybeans. But anyway, I mean, we, we like a lot of the things in no-till and, and reduced till. Probably number one is soil ero erosion reduction. And number two is building soil organic matter. Because just like we're talking about today, when you reduce erosion, you increase organic matter, you typically have a healthier soil. All right, thanks for the question. We were talking about mycorrhizae fungi earlier in our show today, and Kurt's got a question about this. He said, is it safe to use a dry mycorrhizal product along with an infero fungicide? And what's interesting, I, I've looked at some of the labels on some of these different mycorrhizal products, and some of them say don't use a fungicide infero, and others say there are certain ones they've tested to make sure it's safe, but only the ones that they've tested, they can they can say it's safe to use. Now, I, I guess you're just going to have to talk to your mycorrhizal provider and just see which ones have you tested with, which ones do you know are safe. And I would assume a lot of the common ones they've tested because they know you're going to use things like Headline, for example, or Xanthian inferral. But if you've got other inferral fungicides, like perhaps the new Zyway, maybe they haven't tested it with Zyway yet. So I definitely would talk to your provider and read the label to see with your specific mycorrhizal product if that's going to be compatible with that fungicide. Thanks for the question, Chris. 
effort. That's a really good one. And I think sometimes we get using a new product and we forget, oh yeah, I'm using a fungicide and I've got a fungus that I want to apply that's a beneficial also. So you have to make sure they're compatible. All right. Uh, got a question. This one's from Ken up in Ontario. And he said, I'm growing corn and soybeans. I've got a pH of 7.6 and I want to build my soil potassium level. Neil Kinsey says you can't do it if the pH is over 6.5. And I've heard Brian state several times it can be done. Yep. I'm wondering, can it be done in my soils? And what would you do to make that happen? Yeah, I, I wouldn't get too hung up on this pH thing. You're not like at a nine or anything or an eight and a half or anything. And so when we start talking about something in the low sevens or mid sevens, it's not you're not that far off. So anyway, you, but here's the problem: you're low on both potassium and magnesium. You're also low on phosphorus, and so you, there there are a lot of things that you need here. So I'm not just thinking about potassium. I, I mean, usually it's NPK. Okay, so phosphorus, potassium, that's number two and three. Well, what's number four? Usually sulfur. Okay, well, three of the four, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, you're low on. And so those have to get addressed. You're also low on copper. You're low on boron. So I just continue fertilizing a little heavier with those things, and I think you're going to be just fine. I wouldn't get that worried about it. Oh, I would say, too, when your pH is high, what we're looking at a lot of times is, do you have adequate drainage? Now, for you, you're looking at, uh, it's around a 10 to 15 CEC, so it's not like super heavy soil or anything. So hopefully you have good drainage, but if not, I would get some tile out there. And then when you're picking a sulfur source, I would at least get a little bit of elemental sulfur. I'm not saying crazy amounts, but 50, 100, 150 pounds, whatever. So I would be picking elemental sulfur rather than some sulfate form when I need to apply sulfur, which you do, and it looks to me like you do almost every year with that lighter soil and as low as your sulfur levels are right now, and that will also help push your pH down a little bit. But you get these nutrients in balance, and I bet you over time you're going to find here in the next 5-10 years, a lot of your pHs will end up in the mid-sixes. Right, got some feedback from KG. He said, I'm learning a lot from you guys on how to use the right products out in my field and equipment. Hey, KG, thanks for the for the comment. We really appreciate it. We love getting that positive feedback. That's, that's awesome. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of your calls and questions after this. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmyourway. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. I'll take predictability, where I can get it. 
With their CropWise Seed Selector, NK Seeds combines local knowledge and local data to show me where their seed fits. And even where it doesn't. Because out here, predictability is hard to come by. And success matters. Find your seed at nkseeds.com. A history of success means proven performance. But let's call performance what it is. Profitability. And boosting yours, no matter what the season brings, is the goal of DeKalb brand corn. Backed by exclusive genetics, whole farm solutions, and unmatched dealer support. Let nothing shake your perseverance. Ask your dealer how DeKalb brand corn can help you realize a future of performance. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy. All the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. It's not about how quickly you come out of the gate with nitrogen fertilizer, but how strong you finish the race. High Striker uses patent-pending chemistry to stabilize your nitrogen in a form that lasts longer in your crop's root zone. Because for high yields, your nitrogen must last longer, so you can finish the season stronger. Visit agrotechusa.com to learn why so many growers are going the distance with High Striker treated nitrogen. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. So yesterday we had the Ag PhD Corn Agronomy Workshop, and we got a flood of questions in. We're going to try and get through some more of those. This one comes from Brandon. He said, will you elaborate more on the soil must be fit for cold emergence? What do you look for? Yeah, so I had just said yesterday, if you're going to plant when conditions are cold, number one, don't do it before the first crop insurance date. And number two, the soil has to be fit. So what does fit mean? Look, we just want to make sure we're able to get good seed to soil contact. We want to make sure that when we're going through with a planter, we're not creating a lot of compaction and especially sidewall smearing. So those are kind of the things that we're looking at now. What What's the exact measure to do this? I mean, there's no number, there's no super great formula I have for you, but it's just a little bit of common sense when you're out there and you can see, hey, I'm causing a problem with my equipment out here. That's probably not good. That's not soil that we would consider fit. But yeah, what's the exact breaking point? I don't I, I don't have some fantastic definition for you. It's just we want to make sure that we're able to get good seed to soil contact, not causing major compaction, not causing especially sidewall compaction. And then we're usually pretty good to go. All right. We had a few questions on seed testing. What labs do you recommend for cold germ testing? I don't what really labs care. Do there are recommend? a lot of good ones out there. Yeah. What temperature is cold germ testing done? Usually 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I, I think as far as the labs go, I mean, yeah, you're right. There's a number there of different labs. Good ones. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say I'm less concerned about the seed germination thing than I am about soil testing. I, I think I, I'll bet you there's more variability with soil test labs than there would be with seed test labs. But 
here's the other thing, and we talked about this a little bit during our workshop yesterday, that there's a difference between a dead seed, a live seed, and what we would consider an abnormal seed. So it's real easy when you're on a germination test. If seed's dead and nothing happens there, okay, obviously that doesn't count. I mean, that's that's a dead one. But there are there's a cutoff point for what's considered abnormal. So you can't just have germination where there's a little sprout. The sprout has to be what's considered by the seed industry as normal. So there is a little bit of judgment there. Now, most people have been trained relatively the same way. So hopefully that judgment's about the same from lab to lab, but that's the only thing that really requires judgment is when is a seed abnormal versus not. And usually, fortunately, that percentage is relatively low. All right, Jim asked a question. What are the industry percentages for for warm germ and then anything else that we need to know about that, cold germ, anything else? Yeah, well, on corn, and we talked about this a couple times yesterday, corn standard in the industry is 95%. Cold germ is 90 Soybeans, the standard for warm germ is 90%, and for cold germ, it is 80%. Also, I would say soybeans you shouldn't carry over from one year to the next because, and we've had our own testing lab here at Ag PhD for over 25 years. I can just tell you from experience, in year two, soybeans will typically go from, they were 90 and 80, so 90 warm, 80 cold. A lot of times they'll go down to 80 warm and 20 cold. It'll be that bad, they'll lose that much vigor. Whereas corn, if year one it's 95 and 90, year two it might still be 95 and 90, especially if it's kept in cold storage, but usually we only see the warm and cold germs drop slightly each year with corn, whereas soybeans, it's a major drop most of the time. All right. I had a number of questions uh, about collegiate or young farmers activities coming. Jody says, will you be doing a collegiate workshop? Had another one that came in. Is there an age restriction on the the workshop? No. And when is it? Okay. So the last couple of years, we've done a collegiate agronomy workshop, and we've given away a number of college scholarships. We've really enjoyed that. But this year, because of COVID, we aren't having big events. So our corn agronomy workshop, and you might say, well, 150 people, that's a big event. No, that's a small event for us. So we really had to limit attendance, and we didn't want to do that with a collegiate workshop. So what we decided to do is rather than having a winter workshop, we're going to have what we're going to call a young farmer's field day. And there's no age restriction or anything, but it's going to be a lot of hands-on stuff out in the field, uh, looking at plants. We'll we'll be going through everything from tiling, soils, uh, weed control, insects, diseases, you name it. But it'll be very hands-on. It's going to be a lot of fun, and that's going to be Saturday, June 26th. Saturday, June 26th. And I think that's probably on our website now. Okay. Uh, A couple other things here. Ron Heinegger down in North Carolina State did some trial work with a uh, natural product called Heat Shield. Just yep. wondering how was that applied? I believe that was applied in furrow in those trials. No, no co- not believe. It was. He told us it was applied in furrow. In furrow. Yes. Uh, then a couple of tissue testing ones here. One says, how do you know if the foliar nutrient is on the leaf versus in the leaf? And does it even matter if it's on the leaf? Will it get in the leaf? Okay. So... What you're supposed to do before you send in tissue analysis is wash the leaves down with distilled water. If you do that, then anything on the leaf, just sitting on the leaf, should wash off. 
Right. But here's the problem. There, there are some yep. labs that'll say, well, we're going to wash those samples for you. And we've had some there experience. Are? Yep. We've had some okay. experience with farmers who have sent samples into certain labs and all of a sudden, well, they put a boron application on, for example, yep. several days before they sent it in, but then they get boron numbers back that are just astronomical. And the guy's are like, okay, hold on. They told me they were going to wash the leaf. I said, why don't you just wash the leaf? Then you know for sure that the leaf was washed and you right. know it was washed well. Right. So yep. I would recommend washing the leaves before you send them in with distilled water, like Brian yes. said, rather than adding anything else on them. And just because something's sitting on the top of the leaf, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to get in the leaf. Could it wash off? Yes. Could it just simply not get absorbed? Yes. Uh, we, we don't really know. So ultimately... I don't really care about tissue analysis. What I care about at the end of the year is yield. And we use tissue analysis as a measuring tool, and it's nice. So we have some kind of idea what could be causing our problem. So hopefully the next year we can change that and then get higher yields. But I'm just saying that the tissue analysis is not the end-all, be-all thing. But this is also why we would encourage you do tests every week. I do fewer spots, but do it every single week. And then you'll have a pretty good idea. And yeah, you might have one outlier. Well, then you can throw that out. Okay. Uh, I got another tissue testing question here. Are there any plans to add tissue testing functions to the Ag PhD Soils app? This would help us correlate tissue results with our soil results. We've been talking about that. Yes. So hopefully eventually we'll get to that. Okay, uh, another question. We mark our grid points with the Ag PhD Soils app and map our yield with climate field view. Is there a way currently to overlay those grid points onto the yield maps? At the moment, there is no simple way to do that. So what we do is we're using some Case IH equipment for harvest, and then we're using their software in terms of our yield map. And we're overlaying our grid point map as well that we have out of the Ag PhD Soils app. And then we're one at a time painstakingly going, hovering the mouse over the yield point where the grid point would be and manually entering in onto our spreadsheet what the yield is for that grid point. Because obviously we already have the soil test information in the spreadsheet. We just need the yield. So we've done that the last few years on over 2,000 grid points every year. We farm about 3,200 acres and we've been soil testing roughly two-thirds of our ground every year on one-acre grids. But Anyway, um, just we've had one guy who has done that work for us each year. It's one guy who works for us, and he's it, he's been able to do it in one day each year. And then we get all the graphs out of it and everything else. It's been really helpful. So we have a, an idea with our own data off our own farm, which things are paying great, which things do we need to increase the nutrient level on and which things aren't paying or which things do we can we just cut back on. So it's been very helpful for, for allowing us to figure out where best to invest our fertilizer dollars. Okay. Uh, are there industry standards for corn for warm germination tests where every bag of corn you're going to buy is going to be at least this? Are there also standards yeah, we just for cold about unsaturated that. corn? Yeah, yeah, we just talked about that. 95 on corn, 90 on, on warm or sorry, 95 on warm, 90 on cold germ. But in terms of that cold germ standard, that's not going to be on the tag. So there are companies out there who may sell you corn that is 80 or 70 or 60% cold germ. That's why we would encourage you. Every, I mean, literally so every farmer. So there's not an industry standard. 
on there, cold. Well, there, there, there kind of is. A lot of people will say 90% on cold, but it doesn't necessarily mean every company is going to follow that. So we'd encourage you to do a germination test and a cold germination test on all seed you buy before you plant it. Thanks for all the questions today, and thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio. 